All right, so we're here with another episode of Mixtape. Today we're sponsored by, who do we want to be sponsored by today? Let's say Words with Friends. If you want to play me, I'm on it. Are you on it? Uh, I, yeah, I, I am, but I haven't played in a while. Although don't ask me to because I have 14 games on there and it feels like highly pressured to like play with people and I have other things to do. So Also just, spo- sponsored today by Belmont Village. Um, Retirement community, so if you want to get rid of your parents and throw them in a home, visit Belmontville. Maybe they play 80s music. (laughs) Vadim. Vadim? Vadim? (laughs) I look like Vadim. Ilan, it's your lead today. Yeah. Take us through, boo. So when we first started talking about doing this uh, podcast, we were we both wanted to do a George Michael episode, uh, and we realized how long that would be because of his basically two different two separate careers that could each have an episode, one with Wham and one as a solo artist. So we already did the Wham one for you guys last year, and um, now it's time to do one on uh, George's uh, solo career. Squeeze! All right, so here we so when we last left the story, Wham had ended and he was starting his solo career. Yeah. So now we're leading into So the first thing after he uh Wham dissolves is a duet with Aretha Franklin. I knew you were waiting for me, which reaches number 1. A couple of significant things with this song. The first one is it uh when you watch the video, it shows the precursor to the George Michael Faith look, the iconic look that everybody knows him Super for. gay. Super, oh, just the beard and that Super thing. cool. Oh, okay. When I was a kid, I was like 10 at the time, I was like, man, I cannot wait to grow facial hair so I can have a mm. cool-looking beard like George Michael and, and the Levi's and the boot and the leather jacket. This is a precursor to that look. It's kind of close, but it's not quite right. perfect like it was for Faith. I only recently embraced this song. About a year ago. And it's because I'm so used to George writing and producing his own music. And this is done by Narada Michael Walden, who uh, did like Whitney Houston's first, all the slick stuff that you think. And nor did he write it, if, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, this was the first song that uh, he ever performed that he didn't write. And so it felt, it was also the abdominals routine at my aerobics class. So like I have a lot of PTSD around it. <laughs> um, and, you know, it didn't help. But uh, the upshot is, is that I now really love the song. I, I love this track. I, like you, discovered it a little bit later, maybe not last year, but maybe four or five years ago. Um, it's one of my favorite George Michael tracks. <laughs> On the uh, on the video, to me the video 
I was like, could they not coordinate their schedules? Because, like, he's looking at her on, on, on a TV screen, and then they're flashing, and she's looking at him. And I'm like, New York, L.A., London, you know, Detroit or wherever she lives. Like, what's happening here? Can't we get into one place for a day? And then at the end of the video, I think they are together, right? They are. And I'm like, why didn't you just have them there together the whole time? It's a stupid concept. She took the wrong ramp off the freeway of love <sighs> and ended up uh, showing up late to the video shoot. I'm not. I'm <laughs> That's gonna, such a bad I'm going to rip the band aid off here and tell you I'm not an Aretha fan. <laughs> like, all of her stuff is just doesn't work for me. And, uh, but I like this song. Yeah, it works on this song. And then the... Uh, when she did the Target song, and she was like, Target! For, like, Christmas album. <laughs> song, anyway. Song reaches number one. Uh, Aretha Franklin, to date, her last number one hit. Wow. Um, for George in the UK, his third consecutive number one hit, behind Careless Whisper and A Different Corner. Mm-hmm. Were those credited as his solo songs? In the UK, they were credited as solo. Okay. I, I think... I believe... One of them was credited to George Michael featuring Wham. Right. Or something like gotcha, that. Gotcha, 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 gotcha. Cool. Okay. So then we move on to Faith, which in my opinion is one of the top five albums of the 80s. I would agree. Um, the, uh, the first single released from the album, and it comes out a little bit before the album, it's featured on the Beverly Hills Cop 2 soundtrack, is I Want Your Sex. Talk yes. a little bit about what you remember about this. Uh, I, I remember him, even though I'm like racially blind and I just see everyone as equal. I remember him having like an Asian girlfriend in the video, and they're having lots of sex. And um, she had like a like a platinum wig on or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. And I remember that when I played the song in front of my aunts and uncles and family, they grimaced. Let's play a clip of that right now. I think it holds up now. I think you could release this song today and it would be a hit. I completely agree with you. It really holds up. Um, I remember that MTV refused to play the video um, only at late at night, and it would always be preceded by a George Michael PSA, which I've I looked for this morning hmm. on YouTube and I can't find anywhere. So now at this point, I'm thinking it's maybe a figment of my imagination. Maybe it never existed, and I thought it was. But my sister and I knew that. The song was going to come on anytime after nine o'clock Pacific time, so we would just turn on MTV then, and within ten or fifteen minutes, that video Boom. would play. Second song released from the album is "Faith," which hits number one. I think the memory with "Faith" is um, just the iconic video of him playing in front of the jukebox. Um, great tune, such a good song that even Limp Bizkit's terrible uh, cover of it couldn't ruin it for me.
I like this song and I appreciate it, uh, but I think he has way better songs. I guess I just felt like it's like a fun song to, with friends in a car, but like I like when George goes deep. This is not that song. Okay, speaking of going deep would be the third single, my uh, personal favorite from the album, Father Figure. Really? Yes. Mm-hmm. I love this song. And I know that we've discussed the video, how you think the video is super cheesy and it kind of ruins it for you. I can't watch it. It's like black lacquer and a Kristen Scott Thomas knockoff uh, and just these contrived like runway shows that are really the inside of a very small soundstage. Um, And the song is sexy, but it's for me... It doesn't still have a lot of heft to it, but it's a great song. In the sliding scale of George's, it's not one of my favorites. In the sliding scale of songs in the world, I love it. Okay, fair enough. Um, I think the video is awesome. I love that it's supposed to take place in New York, but if you lived and grew up in L.A., you can very clearly tell it was shot in downtown L.A. Right. Um, The model, Tanya Coolidge, I believe. That's in the video I thought was gorgeous I believe you compared her to so uh, either Someone in drag When we were talking about this video I don't know It's all <laughs> I just say things And then I forget them it's Sort of like You know <laughs> Okay Let's play a clip but, 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 but before we go into that I also think it's funny uh, And you should put this link up On the website or whatever In the video I, I didn't realize Back in the 80s How easy it was To get on like a A studio soundstage Because you know, the cab driver, George Michael, just drives in, drives out, goes in, watches her on stage, disappears, all of a sudden appears downtown. It's like, this is not a cab driver. This is a limo driver. He just has a cab. <laughs> You'll see. Watch. Let's play the song. So, you mentioned something to me in all the, the the times we tried to record this episode and just in conversation. At this point, while the album is out, he's actually on tour. And he's touring, and these songs are just going up the charts. Because the first three songs we just mentioned, I Want Your Sex, Faith, and Father Figure, they all hit number one. Uh-huh. The fourth single released is Hard Day, which you and I have discussed. We couldn't figure I out. I don't even remember. I, even right now, because we talked about this months ago, I was like, no, it's One More Try. And you're like, oh. And then I'm like, oh, yeah, I remember it's hard, the Hard Day thing. Yeah, Hard Day's released as a single, and it's almost like they make the call in the middle of the tour, like, this is not going to work. Let's not really promote this that much. They get rid of it, and then they go to One More Try. And One right. More Try hits number one as well. For four weeks, right, or something crazy. Yeah. 
And one more try, he has said, is the answer to Careless Whisper. Whereas I think if you listen to the lyrics of Careless Whisper, it's George feeling regret about hooking up, cheating on his girlfriend or whatever he's pretending to be at the time. And then one more try is like the other side of that where you're trying to uh, make it up to that person and that person... Uh, you know, he's like, if you love me, say you love me. If you don't, then just let me go. Yeah. And the whole premise is like, you can't hold this over me forever. At it a did. certain point, you've got to forgive me and move forward, or you've got to let me go. But like, you're just as culpable now. And it's a really, really sad song. is I hate church organs and things like that in um, pop music. And he's woven that in in a way that's so mournful and nice and yet not overbearing. And you can compare the difference. Uh, if you listen to Mariah Carey's version of she did a cover of it, and hers feels very almost gospel in a way that diminishes the song and the song production. So it made me have an all-new appreciation for this. So the the fact that it's the answer to Careless Whisper, um, I had no idea. You taught me that. Mm-hmm. So anytime I make a George amongst Michael many slash, things, anytime I make a George things. Michael playlist, that song immediately follows yeah. Careless Whisper. Oh, it's okay. like a whole, full relationship in two songs. So. We skipped over Hard Day. It got in the top 40, but it doesn't seem like they really promoted it. They jumped to one more try, which gets number one. The sixth single off of this is Monkey, mm. which I love. I love the I love the Jimmy Jam, Terry Lewis remix, but now I just like the regular version because like you don't really get to hear the Jimmy Jam one very often. I like the video version because there's three different. There's the album, there's the video, and then there's the Jimmy, the Jam and Lewis uh, mix, which is like eight minutes long. Huh. All great. Monkey is yeah. an awesome song. Monkey is very dated, though. Yes. <laughs> Monkey has a very specific that. 80s sound, yeah. the Janet Jackson, Control Era, mini, the Minneapolis sound that basically Jimmy yeah, Jam yeah. and Terry Lewis, along with others, uh, came out I with. think at this point, no one thought they would have this many singles off an album, and they're like, oh, I guess we'll just keep going. Monkey does not feel like it should have ever been released, and yet it ended up being a huge hit. Yeah. Uh, the And I think that you're right. I don't think that they planned to release it as a single because... All of the other songs we're talking about had specific music videos. Monkey is really just George behind a green screen doing some dances with a cool little hat, and then it's all concert footage. I was just going to say, it's a lot of concert footage, right?
So at this point, so like after one more try came out, I was like, this has to be done because everything else had this sort of jazz, jazz drummer bent to it. It all felt very not like anything that was happening on the radio. Um, so I was really surprised. Like Monkey felt throwaway, and that was a hit. And then that leads into the final single, Kissing a Fool. Hold me. <laughs> Love this song. Love the video. <laughs> Love the song. If Great you song. yeah, if I the flourishes for 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 me, I love this song too. I love the video. Um, if you strip this down to just the chord structure, it's such a sad song. I think some of the um, jazz elements, if for lack of a better word, but like the the brush drum, like like that. I don't know what you call that. Like now we're going way deeper than I can go. But like it had the the production on of it uh, went less into like the flowing power ballad of the time and more of this like restrained jazz light jazz kind of thing uh over like the, an overtone to it and it made it a little bit less sad but still great but when you just i remember when people when he died last year people would a couple people had just done the chord structure of this song without any of that and it was so like the da 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 and it it was so sad such a good song i believe on the um on the Faith Remaster, there is an instrumental of this one. Oh, really? But you're right. It is a it is a sad song, but I like how um, it almost feels like listening to the song and watching the video that you're there in a very intimate setting with him. Like, he would be playing this for you, and it's like five or six people just hanging out at a bar after it closed, and he's just playing some stuff for you. We could have shown them There's an intimacy to this song that um, is rare in pop music, I think. So we're at this point now. I mean, I remember when we talked about Wham, he, he, he said he could literally see the stairway to the career to become a giant pop superstar after Wham. Like, he was just like, it was as if it was right in front of me. There was no going down. And I felt that same feeling about him at the time. Um, but... But what ended up happening is because of the Wham deal and everything else, he was actually able to renegotiate his with his label um, both after Wham and again after this Faith album. And so one of the things I was always really confused about is how by the time Listen Without Prejudice had come out, things already seemed wonky with his label. The music videos were... You know, he didn't have him in, and it all felt really spoiled child to me for um, someone who had signed at the height of their career post faith. They should be able to dictate the terms, and I think it's worth just mentioning all of that as we now go into this within without listen without prejudice area. Yeah, a couple of things to follow up. I think that um, he should have been able to renegotiate his contract after faith. I mean, it sold twenty million copies worldwide which i don't think that even sony's best best uh 
in their best scenario, they thought that this album was going to sell 20 million copies. It wins album of the year, wins a Grammy for album of the year. Um, we can talk about what happened after Listen Without Prejudice, which I think was kind of like, what the hell before. are you doing? I think it started before. Okay. Um, so how do you want to move into this era? So he's on top of the world. Um, and we're eagerly waiting for the new album, Listen Without Prejudice, Volume 1. Um, what happens then? <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a couple of things. Um, I'm looking over this album. They had the special, so you get nostalgic. I got the remaster version with the book and stuff. Okay, the Rolling Stone album guide gives this album two and a half out of five stars, which just proves that Rolling Stone has no idea what they're talking about or doing. This I think is, Rolling Stone is amazing. I think the album is way ahead of its time. <laughs> okay. Whatever you think about Rolling Stone, do you believe that this album, Listen Without Prejudice Volume 1, is a two and a half out of five star album? I think it's a five star album. Right. So that proves that Rolling Stone doesn't know what they're doing when it comes to I think that was one writer there, but let's let's stay on point. Okay. So the album comes out, and at this point, it seems that George is kind of going against, uh, how would we put it? Um... The norms for the time of right, what you and, do. And his, he's, he wants people to more focus on the music than the imagery of George Michael. Because at this point, he's become one of the biggest sex symbols in the world. So if you look at Faith as the model for how to do that, with Faith, you have like four solid songs that fit on radio. And then everything else... Uh, could be, for lack of a better word, indulgent or artistic or whatever. Like, Kissing a Fool and and uh, Hard Day and some of the other things that didn't necessarily feel radio-friendly, it didn't matter because you're only going to get four or five singles off an album, and he had enough there to, to make it feel commercial, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, that what happens is you drop a song and the music video, there's a premiere on MTV, it's out three to four weeks before the album comes, um, um, and then, like, right when the album comes, it's crescendoing and you're queuing up the second song. The album, at the time, things didn't debut at number one because they didn't do sound scan then. So it was sort of like this r- slow rise up the charts. Um, and then you would drop a single and a, and a video for every single one, except for maybe you'd get away with just releasing one song without a video. And on this one, he dropped a lyric video, basically, where it was a black screen with a scroll with, with the praying for time lyrics. And I remember MCV had a premiere even for that because he was so big at the time. Yeah, a couple things. Um, I always... F- it, it, praying for time is the first single and it does get to number one, but it almost like kind of slows down the momentum of the album, I feel. Um, I think it's always... Uh, I've always found it it's a mistake for an artist to release a ballad as the first single. Yeah, I would uh, say that. Yeah, yeah. I, I think pop... Uh, a radio-friendly song is the way to go. Uh, I think Freedom 90 should have been the first single released on, on this one. So let's, before we go into the order of the single, like, let's talk about the album overall. Like, what was your... What was the artistic statement? What What did you get out of it? Why, like, or, you know... It's a fantastic album. It flows all the way through. Um, he was such a not only talented vocalist but a great songwriter as well um i mean i'm just in shock that and this was the re-review of the album that it was two and a half out of five stars this is a five-star album 
uh, to the max. This is this the is the review is two there. Yeah, you know how they would do the original review which at was, the time, and yeah. then they do the album guide review, which is done after. Like I'll give you an example. Right. Um, 1999, I think, was four stars when they originally reviewed it, and then when they did the re-review, it's a five star album. Got it. So, whatever. Um, point being, I, I think that in many ways, this is a superior album to Faith. Oh, it totally is. I think this album is works as a cohesive piece of um, of music. I think there's the one song that stands out as different for me is the Stevie Wonder cover, They Won't Go Where I Go, because everything else was written by George, mm-hmm. and this feels like it's a little bit different, right? Um, I think if you froze this album and didn't release it and dropped it now, it's actually more applicable to the times we live in now. There are great songs about love, and there's the um, some great samples in there, like the... What's his name? The Waiting for the Day with the yeah. Rolling Stone sample. Yeah, like that kind of thing. But if you... Li- but then there's also these... these um, these songs that take on the issue of the day. Like, if you look at the lyrics for Praying for Time, it doesn't feel like that's what anyone was thinking about in the early 90s. And now you, you, know, you look at it, and it's like, it's hard to love. It's, it's you know, easy to hate. You know, there's so... Like, it, I'm missing it. Hang on. What does the lyric go? It's like... It's like the rich have declared themselves poor, and most of us don't know if we have too much, but we'll take our chances because God, God stopped keeping score. score. And it's things that I didn't think about. I don't think my parents thought about that. And it's like these lyrics that are so of the day or mother's pride about a child going to war and how it's like this generational thing that no one wins, and yet we tell the kids their daddy died a hero. And at the time, it was like we haven't had a war in a generation and the Vietnam thing felt before us and Iraq felt like there was no draft for the Iraq war. It felt small and far away. And it it just, it sinks in a lot deeper now. And then you have all these great love songs, which I think go through uh, like waiting for the day or, or the reprise, like waiting part two Mm -hmm. are so well done or something to save. Um, I really, really enjoyed this album overall. So Praying for Time goes to number one. Uh, great song. But you said really weird because at this point you're used to George Michael being not only a very visual artist with these with the videos that were coming out and his face was plastered everywhere. And like you said, it just has lyrics on it. I don't really remember a video for Waiting for the Day. Now, Waiting for the Day gets to 27, so it kind of... it's That it was ends, released as a single? Yeah, it was the second single off the album. It's... Um, it ends George Michael's streak of top uh, five uh, singles at like, well, I mean, if you count um, 
hard day mm-hmm. as a single release, but it, it, it kind of, 27 for him was really low. Do you remember if there was a video for Waiting for the Day? No. The, only, the next video was the only other one, which was... Freedom. Freedom. Freedom 90. Which is iconic, and he was able to pull off not being in it. And the most autobiographical pop song I've ever heard in my life. Um, Listen to the lyrics are so deep and it's like he's kind of crying for help and it kind of shows you where his mind was at and what I guess what the rest of his career had in store um, Heal the Pain released as a single doesn't chart I love that song do you know Heal the Pain mm-hmm. let me tell you a secret put it in your heart and keep it something that I want you to know do something for me listen Acoustic number. I, I mean, that and Waiting for the Day and Waiting Part 2 and Cowboys and Angels, I think, are the highlights of the album for me. Mother's Pride is released as the next single, only gets to 46. Cowboys really? I thought it went high, bigger, no? No. I'm, I'm going by the U.S. Uh, right. In Europe, they were bigger. Cowboys and Angels doesn't chart, and Cowboys and Angels is a fantastic song. Um, Soul Free doesn't chart. So... You're looking at this as a kid in the 90s or whatever, or late 80s, and you're thinking, oh, he's being a brat, right? And, and these songs wouldn't do well. <clears throat> but what becomes increasingly clear as, as the dust settles and we can look at George's career um, as a finite thing, he's now dead, and, and we can do this sort of forensic investigation. And whether it's uh, his own interviews or what people have written about it or whether it's the Showtime documentary that came out last month, you start to see the importance of the record company, and they didn't get behind it. And uh, and and so I guess one of the big questions, because this this is an album for, for people who are George Michael fans that I think they remember more than Faith, and yet it didn't do as well. And so the question becomes, is it because it was different? And because it's so commercial and accessible. I don't think it's like some really indie alt thing. I really have to question whether it was like to a certain extent or not putting the full force behind it to scare him and get him into line. 
Well, I think it's, I think probably from a record company's perspective, they're expecting something a lot closer to Faith, where it has all of these pop hits like you, like you had mentioned, um, and they get delivered this, and they might not know what to do with it, because this is a lot more introspective, um, the songs are more thought out, and he's talking about, you know, emotions and things that he's dealing with. Whereas, you know, Faith, Faith is like, uh, it's a great song, but it's like a kind of a bubblegum pop song. It doesn't really talk about much, whereas almost every song in this album is talking about something that he's dealing with. And maybe Sony just didn't know how to promote this. Right. It doesn't help either that, you know, their biggest star on their roster refuses to do music videos or any press for the album. That probably didn't help either. Right. So... But then it did well in England, right? It was, in it was huge in Europe. And so is that because they view music differently, or or what What do we think that was about? I don't know. That that would actually be an interesting podcast for us to do about the differences between um, albums in Europe and here, because, like, and a lot of my stuff that I think about music is based on Prince stuff, but Prince albums that didn't do well here, um, like... Uh, out of Love Sexy, let's say, was huge in Europe, and it didn't even reach a million a million units sold in the United States. It it's hard to explain. I, I have no idea why it would be so much bigger in Europe. So, at this point, you're thinking, well, he just signed this new contract before this. You're not playing the game, quote unquote, and yet, <clears throat> you know, when you see the interviews with him, what he's what 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 really starts to come out was like this is where he was going as an artist and he felt like well they did it in Europe and it was successful there um and these executives only want to see certain things and you know it reminds me of like I used to work with salespeople right and we'd have to put all these sort of things together and programming and and anything that like required any um, effort, thought, or being out of the box. It's just like they couldn't, they went like an inch deep, right? And I'm sure he was struck with a, a bunch of that too, where it was like, okay, so this isn't the exact same thing. When you get the right person with the right talent and something seems different, that's actually where it breaks out. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've really gone from like, George, what was your problem into... You know, this felt like a Sony problem. And this is what we were talking to you about a little bit before we got here, which is where is that piece where, uh, um, whereas I guess what I was trying to say is like Clive Davis, Tommy Mottola, there's all these people out there that pluck L.A. Reid, these, these stars, and they turn them into big, huge superstars, right? Clive did that with everyone from Barry Manilow to Whitney Houston, um, more recently, he's, like, resuscitated the career of Aretha Franklin, and the list goes on and on, right? Um, all of them have said that at a certain point when they tried to, like, take more control of their career, uh, Kelly Clarkson, right, that that these guys not only rebuffed that, but actually sabotaged it. And if you look at people like, just like someone in the middle, like Taylor Dane. There was a moment where she's like, you know, I, I don't want to do that song. I want to do this song. Or like, stop pushing the Diane Warren ballad on me and let me try this thing. I did that on my first album. No, no dig on Diane. I love her music, right? But the, it seems like there's this complete, they're, they're looked on as a puppet 
Yeah, they don't. The the record companies uh, um, don't seem to want to take a risk where they don't want the artist to grow. It's like, okay, we have this formula. Faith was a formula. It sold 20 million copies. Stick to the formula. Yeah. Give us pop songs. I mean, it's jarring to see Whitney Houston in real life, and you're like, she's a Jersey girl. She's not this, like, slick. Yeah. It's so funny. Like, everyone Are you talking about because you just saw that Whitney movie on Lifetime, or? I mean, or I'll (laughs) go through and just watch interviews with her or whatever, and you think, like, she was this sort of milquetoast, suburbs of Jersey, whatever thing, and then... You're like, oh wait, she's the one who corrupted Bobby. Yeah. And like, she's the one who's like, you know, s- s- just very s- not that slick thing, right? And I think you see that with with George here, where where um, he wanted to evolve his career into something, and it didn't fit into their what we would call today an algorithm of of success. Um, but. So I think that part was disappointing. I think like any artist where everyone's chirping in your ear or whatever, there are certain things you have to do. You have to do press. You should have some thought-out strategy for how to promote it. At the time, that was MTV. If you're not going to make a music video, then have a strategy around that. That's for the Freedom video. We're going to get supermodels, and that'll get us by with this. And uh, instead of George and the other videos, he'll host a five-part series of people covering his songs or a live performance like there's ways around doing all that otherwise you have to a little bit abdicate uh your role because you're not doing anything yeah i think the the documentary um you know you can you do feel a little bit sorry for him more so than before where you were where you alluded to that he was just being a brat and not wanting to play the game um i think both parties are at fault and the people who ended up losing were really the fans because with this whole fight with Sony, we lost, we as fans ended up losing a huge chunk of his career, um, probably at his artistic peak. So what? T- the, with the so the, listen without prejudice is re-released this fall. Mm-hmm. Why should anyone care? Because it's one of the best albums made in the last twenty five years. I got it. I bought it twenty years ago. Why do I need to get it again? Okay, so if for anything, you get it for the second disc alone, which is. B-sides, rarities You know what One of my favorite songs on there And I had never heard it I love Too Funky Which was released on that Red Hot and Dance Did you Have you gone around To listening to the Too Jazzy yes. I watch your fingers Working overtime I've got to thank him That they should be mine I'd love to see you naked baby I'd like to think that Sometime maybe tonight Purchase a physical copy or just the the audio of the uh, I have iTunes the... Music Girl. Okay, so the physical cop the the physical big boy is awesome. It was like eighty bucks on Amazon, I think. Mm-hmm. It's a book. The book is so cool. It has all the lyrics, mm-hmm. has photos. It has outtake photos. It's actually showing you proof sheets from the photo shoots that they did for like the Freedom single. Remember how the 
Remember how the Freedom single They came out with a record with, It actually had him He's like with the black sweater It was one of those records uh-huh. that has So it has outtakes from that stuff It also includes a concert DVD Oh um, And it has the um, The MTV Unplugged episode that he did Right I which I never, a lot of those songs Yeah Which I never actually got to um, I never saw the MTV Unplugged When it originally aired Yeah me either I don't even remember it Yeah I, I, I ended up uh, watching it on YouTube. Favorite song on the, you know, extras of with of the newly released one. What is your favorite of like the extras? Probably the two jazzy because I had never heard it. Uh, Fantasy was cool, but Fantasy um, I actually liked the version that was on the Faith remaster better than the Nile Rodgers. Okay, cool. So I'm gonna say uh, the Back to Life. Matchup with Yeah, that's um, a great one too For with Freedom song, For Freedom For 90. Freedom yeah. So his song Freedom And then it's Soul to Soul's Like Back to Life yeah. And it's all Brought together And that's and, really cool And that was super hard To find for a long time oh, because, You could not find it yeah, Until this came out You couldn't It was on the original single For Freedom 90 But yeah. you couldn't find it anywhere One of the interesting things is Listen Without Prejudice Volume 1 Obviously that would lead people to believe that there was a Volume 2 And you can read snippets that there was a plan for a Listen Without Prejudice Volume 2 Which was supposed to be more like pop and dancey and stuff um, But little is known about the project um, Researched it And it's funny because you can go on the internet and find out about so-and-so's unreleased album And this person But there's really not much um, you could probably figure out that Too Funky was going to be intended for um, the Listen Without Prejudice Volume 2. I base that on the fact that it's on that... Um, Red Hot yeah, and whatever. And also that they threw on different versions of it on the bonus disc of Listen Without Prejudice Volume 1. So um, I want you to talk a little bit, because you're the expert, on the the whole lawsuit with Sony and what happens immediately after Listen Without Prejudice and why we're not getting any really new music from George. Yeah, so I, I, I'm not the expert, just in case anyone's <laughs> like a super fan, but for the research that I've done, uh, a few things happened. So Sony's pissed about the performance, Sony at USA is pissed about the performance of Listen Without Prejudice, Volume 1. George blames them for the performance of the album. Um, and things continue to get very acrimonious between them. And ultimately, George sues to get out of his contract. And again, this is why I brought it up at the beginning, because everyone's like, well, you just signed one at the height of your career before this album. Like, didn't you know? Didn't you work with these people before? What is up? But uh, I think he signed it thinking that he was going to have way more artistic control than he had and he was treated like a commodity and not an artist 
right? And ultimately, I think things became so frayed that he said, I'm not going to ever record again if it's with Sony. And Sony was like, well, we'll just sit this out a year and we'll bang out a Mariah Carey album or whatever else Sony has on its roster. And eventually he's going to want to record and eventually he will. But what they didn't know is that George is also kind of a stoner and not that prolific. So he was happy to never record again. Uh, Sony sits and sits and sits. George falls in love. George falls in love with a guy. It's sort of the first time he's really able to just not care because he doesn't know what's going to happen with his career. He's dropped his guard a little bit about the gay thing. I think people had murmurings about it at this point, but he just went all in with this guy and just waited everything out. And I think for someone with... um with George's maybe personality, this might have been the worst thing that could have happened to him. Not the falling in love part and all that, but maybe the not caring and losing the structure of like, okay, I'm going to put out an album every year and a half or two years because this is when a lot of the, some of the problems in his personal life started. uh, Yeah. I just think everything started to fall in on each other. At a certain point, I think that uh, the, the MT, the, the Sony, Europe or London or whatever the, the, where the people who released it outside of the United States, Sony International they were like, let's play ball let's do what he wants to do I don't think the people in Sony America were, they were like, we're going to screw you at a certain point it became very clear that was not going to change and I think David Geffen ultimately said to Tommy Mottola or whoever it was at the time like, he's not going to record again with you, ever, and so once it became clear that George lost his lawsuit, was willing to just never record again, a lot of time had passed. The bluff was not called on both sides, and and nothing happened. Um, and I think at the same time, Geffen Records, David Geffen left Geffen Records and was going to launch DreamWorks SKG, and he would be the part of the studio that was music. It was sort of like he the was Latin. the G and he was the G, <laughs> and um, and I think having like a, a marquee artist like like George was something to have. So he ended up negotiating with Richard Branson and Virgin Records to extricate Sony and uh, George, George from their from deal. Sony. Right, George got extricated from his deal. It cost Geffen like forty million or some crazy amount of money, and um, which is crazy to think because. You're watching the documentary and, and you hear these numbers and like, how did they expect to recoup that forty million? I mean, if you sell an album and that's all they sold, there was no singles in that era. Remember, everything was you had to buy the CD, and so if you get like ten dollars a CD out of like fourteen dollars or whatever, and you sell, I don't know, ten, and then there's like right, so four million sales using just the ten dollars a CD. Um, four million before you start to even turn a profit on it. But the four, you have to sell four million of this album just to clear the forty million you spent on, on yeah. extricating them from. It's kind of crazy, but then it's like you're starting the label with someone big, yeah. and you know there's all kinds of ancillary things that can go with it. Blah 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 blah. Can I just cut him for one second? So in between all of this, he does release an EP, the Five Live EP, which has two. Two songs. I believe it was recorded during the Queen tribute tribute concert. Yeah, somebody to love. I think got released as a single. It did, and um, I love the killer. Papa was a Rolling Stone kind of mm-hmm. mashup. That's a great track. Oh, 
George Michael. Jackson. I mean, didn't you have an Elton John? Uh, some don't, let, don't the let the sun go down on me. Yeah. So um, anyway, going back. So okay. So, so now he gets he, out of his contract and basically decides to make this album older. Now the weird thing is older. Is his least successful album in the States And his most successful album Everywhere else But this album is basically In the time that it was made His lover dies of AIDS Uh, He's heartbroken And it's kind of like his coming out album Which he didn't formally come out at the time But like the lyrics are very clearly These very It's very clear what's going on Mm -hmm. And I think the, the, the other thing that I found interesting was the first single is again a very slow song, Jesus to a Child. And at that time, you, could, you were only supposed to have like a song that was like three and a half minutes or whatever. And this song was like a five minute song. It's crazy. Yeah. Um, and we, we talked about how, didn't the record company push for him to release Fast Love as the first single? But he kind of held his ground and said, nope, this is yeah. the first And one. then he held his ground saying, I wanted to release a seven minute version of Jesus to a Child. And they were like, absolutely not. And they literally had to go to him and say, songs are put on these carts or something. Or, I forget what the name of the things were, but they're, they're only like five minutes or something. Like, you're pushing it at four or whatever. And they had to show him that it would actually hurt the quality of the song to do it the way he wanted. And that's when he relented and, and cut the song down to like four and a half or five minutes. So again, still whatever. But the album... Only had the two songs, really, right? Yeah. Two um, singles, Jesus to a Child. And I didn't really like this album, and yet it was his biggest album ever in, in internationally. There's, um, there's a lot of hits and misses in this yeah. album. Uh, Jesus to a Child is a beautiful, beautifully written song. Um, you can really tell it comes from the heart. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Fast Love is, a, is an okay pop song. Um, Star People. I don't know. Whatever. We My favorite song on here is You Have Been Loved. Okay. Good tune. Um... What else do we want to say about this one? I, I just, I didn't really get it. It was somewhat anticlimactic. You waited all this time. And it was an interesting time in the music industry. You had him fighting. You had Prince fighting. You had all these older artists talking about how they've been ripped off by the record company. So whatever, it goes on. It drags on. Finally, he's extricated from his contract. He comes out with older, and it's like, we waited this long. It, it was kind of anticlimactic. It's like we waited five years, right? Was it five years between mm-hmm. the release of... It was a long time. Yeah, five or six years, maybe longer, who knows? Bottom line is it seemed anticlimactic. Too, uh, yeah, too, too much time had gone by, yeah. and it didn't overcome, and he needed to have that extra while. The other sad part about it was is to extricate him out of his contract. Uh, Geffen and DreamWorks split that cost with uh, Richard Branson and Virgin. So let's, let's say that's what, like... 20 million a piece or whatever The album hardly sold anything here in the States And yet it's this huge hit But they both, you know, had to pay the same amount They didn't get to converge the money uh, and, and do it that way So uh, Geffen really got screwed on this one He really would have screwed the pooch Is that a, is that a saying? Yeah, screwed the pooch uh, Would that apply here? Yeah Geffen screwed the pooch <laughs> Um so that's the story through older. And then he, the funny thing is, immediately after that, for the end of his career, he goes right back to Sony. Yeah. Love it. What he, is it? One of the interesting things about watching the documentary on Showtime is how they're talking to George Michael and they're talking to the people at Sony and kind of the regret that they that both parties seem to have. They realized it was a huge mistake. 
for George Michael realized it was a huge mistake for him to sue his record company. The record company kind of realized that it was a huge mistake for them to fight their, at the Mm -hmm. time, their biggest artist. And at the end, we, the fans, got screwed. Yes, (laughs) as we always do. If you haven't seen the documentary, it's on Showtime. Um, Oddly enough, George was finishing producing it himself before he died. And when you look at it, it's a really sad documentary, and it made me sad to think that that's what he thought of his life, you know? Yeah. It was also sad to see that model at the beginning introduce the whole thing, and she looked world-weary. That, that model Girl, was put down the Yeah, put down the fucking mirror and the cocaine and the whatever, you know? It's like she was <laughs> worn out. So... Two more albums, which, I mean, quite honestly... We're not going to talk about those, are we? Well, we're just going to touch on them real quick. There's nothing to talk about. Patience and Symphonica. Um, Symphonica's okay. Yeah, a lot of people like it. I've I've honestly never heard it. As a fan, I kind of checked out after older. Mm, I got older. I listened to it. I have it. It's like, okay. Um, When he passed away, you kind of start to look back on the career and appreciate these things a little more. Maybe I'll give Patience and uh, Symphonica a, a, a listen. Awesome. All right. So that's it for another episode of Mixtape. Um, guys, we love listener feedback. Go to our Facebook page and uh, or we're on Instagram as well, Mixtape Podcast. We want to hear what you guys want to talk about. If you want to send us a voice record on commenting on anything we've talked about, let us know. Or if and- there's any single ladies that want to send me pictures, um, please feel free. But not me. <laughs> and scene. <laughs> and that's another episode of Mixtape. We are out.